Thanks for tuning in. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the guests and do not reflect the views of the Oswego Alumni Association, SUNY Oswego, or any of its officials. Email us with guest ideas at alumni at oswego.edu. Welcome to the Oswego Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Dee Perkins. Today, we're talking to a retired Navy captain who's had a life of service, not only to our country, but in serving students as a teacher and a mentor. Marty Lindenmeyer is a retired senior intelligence officer with the Defense Intelligence Agency, a retired Navy captain. He specialized in intelligence support to special operations, supporting technical collection operations. He is also a two-time winner of the Defense Meritorious Service Award, the Legion of Merit Award, and the Navy Meritorious Service Award, along with numerous NATO, Defense, Navy, and Theater Combat Ribbons and Awards. And after all of that, he's running for selectman in the town where he lives in Connecticut. Welcome to the podcast, Marty Lindenmeyer, Meyer, class of 1979. I got through all of that and messed up your last name. <laughs> That's okay. You did great, Dee. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today to, to talk to you in the Oswego alumni community. Wow, you have been busy. Your your resume just reads on and on. Let's start with the great story of how you came to the Navy and being an intelligence officer after your time at Oswego. Did you sign up for the Navy before or after graduation? It was after graduation. Um, actually, um, yeah, when I was at college, of course, I was a student association president and in the fraternity, uh, Sigma Takai and and. Um, you know, stuff around with the different communities of the dorms I lived in as well uh, as is out in the civilian life. So, um, and it really had to do a lot of, with the service. My, my father grew up um, during the time of the depression and World War II and Korea, served both there and uh, just imbued my whole family with the idea that, that we owe time, talent, treasure, whatever it is we can give to our communities, wherever it may be. And so after college, um, I worked for Genesee Brewing Company for a while. Uh, I was waiting law school, kind of pushing my way through. But at the time, it was a uh, Iran um, hostage crisis in 79 um, into 80. And um, uh, my brother, older brother, was a Marine uh, serving in the Middle East at the time. Um, my young, next younger brother was at West Point um, and uh, was playing football, but also you know, getting ready to serve in the Army. And um, I had thought about Naval service when I was in college, going to the Naval Academy, decided I'd rather go to Oswego. And I thought that was a great choice and still do think it was the best choice. But um, so at that point, um, I started looking at, at, at thoughts, um, you know, how do I serve? And as I started looking at what I wanted to do as far as going to college or grad school or law school, I said, I'm not really ready for that right yet opportunity came to join the Navy um, to go to, to aviation officer candidate school, basically um, officer and gentleman if that movie you know, rings a bell with anybody. That was the program that I went through in Pensacola, Florida. And um, uh, from there, uh, got into the flight community and from there got into all the other things that the Navy served. But um, yeah, it was a kind of a combination. And I was actually recruited by a, a Naval uh, a, a pilot uh, at the time who was a Oswego uh, grad. Um, and I'd met him at a, uh, I think it was a fraternity function or Christmas function at the year after I graduated and had his card um, and decided, you know, one day to give him a, during a snowstorm when I was, you know, working for the, the brewery, uh, like sitting waiting for the snow to clear and I had found his card and that kind of prompted me to, to ask questions and, and, and give him a call. And from then, everything was history. 
Do you remember his name? Let's give him a shout. No, out. I was looking it up. I, I didn't. I met him at my 40th anniversary, um, and uh, I was looking to get his name. It was, I think it was Lieutenant Commander Howard. I think it was his last name. I have to look that up, and I'll, I'll get that for you, Dee, because uh, I think it's important since he was an alumni of this video. That's amazing. Uh, alumni always uh, kind of wind up guiding us when we're in school and then when we graduate school, no matter what field, I get this story over and over again. And you must feel such a debt of gratitude that the, that person helped guide your career. Absolutely. He, he was, yeah, he kept uh, kept in contact with me through all my uh, basic training and boot camp with the Marine Corps and then into the, in the flight program. And, and then to run into him later, we actually uh, found out that we had paralleled careers. I had followed him uh, in some of the aviation community uh, chasing submarines at the time um, and had been in the same duty stations, but, you know, like a few years behind him because, you know, I, I was more junior to him. And that was pretty interesting. And we only had about maybe 15 minutes to talk at an alumni event at the, um, the ROTC program office uh, there in Oswego. Uh, but it was, it was really great to, to catch up with him. Did you actually fly planes? I did. I, I was through the, uh, the flight program. I initially went into the flight program to, uh, to fly jets. Um, I did not um, finish the jet program. Uh, at the time, um, uh, there was a classmate of mine, Lori Bolbrook, who also was a Navy uh, pilot. She was uh, graduated with me in 79. She became a pilot, I think, just a little bit after me. She completed and became a pilot. Um, I was in the middle of the 600-ship Navy tug of war between President Clinton, or excuse me, President Carter and Kennedy um, um, Reagan at the time. And so an opening came and they just said, but you, you're going to go fly sh uh, boats now. You're going to go to surface warfare school in Newport, Rhode Island. And it was like, just go. So um, I eventually went back into the community and flew um, in P3s, uh, patrol planes. Um, the incident, as we're talking now, of the submersible that was looking for the Titanic that actually sank, um, it, it was tracked by Canadian P3s at the time, same kind of plane that I flew in quite a bit in. Um, I did get a chance to fly F-14s off the aircraft carrier Enterprise back, back in 1984 um, on, a, on, a, on a cruise, um, and that, you know, that was a, great. But uh, I got into other, other types of, of activity, but I flew on a lot of planes over my career. Uh, and jumped out of a lot of them as well. So, are these the kind of planes that land on the carriers? Yes, that was yeah. I have carrier calls, uh, catch shots, um, and recoveries. Yeah, so a lot of fun. Control crashes and and uh, and excited excited launches uh, off of a steam catapult. Those are a lot of fun. What made you? That sounds like an amazing career in and of itself. And there's still so much more on your resume. What made you decide to leave that? And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm maybe not jumping ahead, where you go more into the intelligence life. No, actually, it's a good segue. Um, when I got out of that um, program and, I, and they sent me to surface warfare school, they had assigned me to a, a ship. Unfortunately, it was a, a an old, old, old ship, 1948 class, uh, 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 I guess a destroyer uh, class. Anyway, um, it had problems and took on a lot of water during a storm when it was in the harbor in Norfolk. It couldn't get its engines running, which is one of the problems with that ship. Um, and I was supposed to be the main propulsion assistant to help get those engines running after school. But the ship became incapable of continuing. So the Navy decommissioned it, which put me in a limbo. And at that point, I ended up going into a program called Operation or um, Oceanographic Research, which was really um, chasing and tracking Soviet submarines. Uh, it's been declassified a little bit more now, and it's called the Integrated Undersea Surveillance System or the Sound Surveillance System, and it's a series of uh, places around the world. And that's where I went. And 
partly um, what was kind of interesting and, and, and what really kind of keyed my career to doing so many things that, that you've read about, Dee, is um, as a male at the time in the early 80s, um, and, and there was a lot of women officers and women enlisted that were now put in my program because it was an operational program. It was one that um, was on par with, with uh, at the time, uh, maybe not totally on par, but certainly um, career-wise on par for women to be pilots or women to be you know, ship drivers. At the time, there weren't women at sh on ships consistently. There were a few that were on carriers. Women just were getting into the aviation community. Uh, Lori Bulbrick, again, was one of my classmates, was one of them. Um, and um, so a lot of the opportunities to go to foreign navies, to go to foreign countries, uh, kind of fell to men. And the officer corps in that community that I was going into, IUSS, was probably 70% women. It's an opportunity to give them operational experience and help their career along. Um, but as a man, I was the one that was always said, hey, we need somebody to go to Norway. Hey, we need somebody to be, go on a French submarine for two weeks. Hey, we need someone to travel to, you know, Philippines or get on a P3 and, and do an operation in the South China Sea. And, you know, my, <laughs> I guess I should have listened to my dad about, you know, the whole idea of never volunteering. But at the time, it sure sounded like it was interesting. And, um, you know, again, um, I was looking for opportunities to see the world. And, and I got a chance to do that. So through all those activities of volunteering and going to the different duty stations in the, in the mid Pacific to South Pacific to nor uh, to Iceland um, to, and then all the other countries that I traveled uh, in between those in my early career, my early Navy career in the early eighties, it was a great opportunity to, to make contacts, um, see things and, and then, you know, plan my um, future endeavors in the intelligence community. So it was about 10 years where I, I just kind of went wherever the Navy needed me to go. And uh, it was really, it worked out. It was really interesting. You retire from the Navy and then you go to work for the Defense Intelligence Agency, which isn't one of those agencies that we, you know, roll off our tongues. It's not CIA, FBI, it's DIA. Uh, tell us a little bit about the DIA, if you can. I can. I can. Um, yeah, DI, it likes to, you know, uh, kind of um, parlay its, its, its uh, organization as similar to the CIA, only on the Department of Defense side, where it's CIA does mostly civilian and international business stuff. Uh, technically, it's supposed to be that way. Um, but it's not, it's a smaller organization. It's grown exponentially um, uh, with some of the new uh, reforms in the, in the United States military system in the past I think 30, 40 years. It's been around, but almost 60 years, I guess it's been around. DI does uh, a lot of uh, specialized intelligence work, uh, collection management. They handle a lot of the, uh, the specialized intelligence systems that they have worldwide. They do a lot of intelligence analysis on military, mill to mill, military against military, um, threat assessments, things like that of the country. They also run the defense attache program, which is a, an overt type of intelligence officer that's sent to an embassy to work for the ambassador um, and to meet uh, formally and informally with the foreign militaries of the country that, you know, that they're assigned to. Um, and those uh, exchange information on how to better military, military relationships, to keep the lanes of communication open so that we're not backing ourselves into a trouble spot when a, a phone call or a better understanding, you know, between say a Navy ship or an army unit or a, a Marine unit or whatever, and, and a host nation military, you know, might get ramped up and get intense. Um, they're there to help out and they're help uh, when military uh, assistance is needed in countries. They're the ones that, that start the ball rolling and, and are the first uh, line of defense. I actually, uh, one of my career moves was to be commander of the um, Defense Intelligence Agency's attache unit um, for reserve, for support to, uh, to different elements. That was right before 9-11. Uh, I was um, uh, uh, promoted to captain on September 8th. 
um, 19, uh, yeah, or 2001. And yeah, on September 11th, of course, three days later, 9-11 hit. Uh, I was assigned in my, in my duties um, to manage 40 or 50 um, uh, naval and, and other uh, joint uh, army and air forces one attaches that were assigned to help support um, operations around the world. And as 9-11 hit three days later, uh, special ops came in and grabbed me and took me out of that role at the last minute and moved me in. But um, so, uh, yeah, so getting away, DI, back to DI. DI did a lot of things with the technical stuff. Um, they developed things. They have um, uh, great uh, involvement with the military research labs, Army, Navy, Air Force, um, uh, Marine Corps uh, labs that do specialized intelligence development of, of systems, engineering, um, uh, uh, technical collection stuff that I was doing, tags, toys, things like that, um, um, overhead projections, um, airborne uh, collection uh, photography or, uh, you know, the different uh, ELINT, electronic intelligence signals, intelligence, so on. So DI does a lot of that working with the other intelligence agencies. Um, and they do, they are the ones that control uh, the personnel and the movement of all the civilians in, in the Department of Defense, uh, intelligence civilians. Um, that go DOD lines now, Army, Navy, Air Force have their small section of just the, the service-related people, but they're the ones that are work in joint communities. Um, you know, that they really since the 80s anyway, if not the late 70s, 80s, the joint community of where all the services work together with civilian counterparts and with foreign militaries and foreign intelligence agencies, DI has been at the forefront of coordinating a lot of the military relationships to that thing. So, um, so I... Uh, was recruited as I got out of my time uh, from an operation I had done in the Philippines to come into DI and basically do the same thing in the technical collection group to open up the opportunities for DI to expand in technical intelligence, supporting special operations in the counterterrorism, counterinsurgency stuff that I had been doing for 20 some years. So um, they hired me to do that. And I basically ran almost the exact same thing with some of the same people even that I'd worked with in the military, but on the civilian side. Yeah, and uh, working around the world. So that um, that's how I get, get, came there in 2003 after my couple my first couple of years at, uh, with, with Special Ops. Um, it and, sounds extremely overwhelming and a lot. <laughs> and the yeah. very funny part about it is even though it sounds overwhelming and a lot, it also sounds extraordinarily important. We are not talking about marketing the latest toothpaste. Yeah. So yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, a very specific example of your day to day. What was it? What was the normal day like in in your? You know, was it? Oh my God, Marty, we found this bomb and it's going to go off. Like, was it really every day the kind of intensity that we see on TV? Uh, um, it, at times, yeah, at times it was, especially after nine eleven. Uh, the support to the warfighter uh, was extremely important, and and I had learned that a long time ago in, in my military career. Um, moving into DID, again, did we used to say DI did about 80% of its intelligence work inside the Beltway, inside the Pentagon, you know, and 20% they supported the, the, what we call the regional combatant commanders, the Pacific commander, uh, Asia Pacific commander now, uh, European commander, Africa commander, say central commander, southern commander, um, national commander, the, you know, the one that does the United States and, and, and our allies. Um, so we did uh, a lot of work, but um, as the war and terror, especially ramped up in, in, the, in the tracking of uh, Osama bin Laden and the understanding of the Al-Qaeda programs ramped up our, our um, intensity and the focus, you know, really increased and, uh, and so did some of the uh, urgency because we understood, uh, you know, through our intelligence work and, and, and the analysis we put in to studying Osama uh, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and the Haqqani network and Taliban and 
ISIS and all the other variations of, of, of these extremist groups, where they move quickly and they were very small and opportunities to track and understand them uh, were, li were limited. Uh, our post analysis from 9-11 itself, from, uh, you know, the hijackers and the attackers that, that uh, devastated our America uh, and American economy and our American spirit for, for a short while. Uh, you know, there were signs, as, as anybody's read any of the reports, there were signs along the way that each intelligence agency had, but we never brought together to, to make that mosaic. And, and, and find out what was going on. And this is part of what we did. So yeah, I had the urgency to change from just being a bureaucratic or organization, small you know, defense group that supported the leadership and the defense, uh, of the uh, defense department uh, was now to go out and actually work uh, closer to the people in the field. And, and that's where the expertise I brought to them. <clears throat> so there were times when I, I, I was in mind numbing meetings with engineers, you know, or with, with, with people that were doing the, the day-to-day um, -day work of, an, of a large organization, like anywhere else, it could have been um, Unilever or it could have been, you know, um, Boeing or, you know, or whatever, telecom you want to think of, uh, just going through, you know, what, what programs are going to be in place, what meetings we're going to go to, who's going to order what for lunch. I mean, I hate those meetings on Monday. Where, where I went to three of them when I got it and then said, I'm not going to any more of these meetings. I don't care about lunch. I have work to do. <clears throat> but at the time, I was recruiting people and we were actually putting people out in the field. So once, once you had the responsibility to send people forward from whether, you know, my headquarters was in D.C. or the Defense Intelligence Agency, but I worked out of, you know, uh, embassies. I worked out of military base camps. We worked out of uh, um, operational units, um, you know, foreign uh, intermediate support base, foreign operating bases forward uh, with, with, you know, the, uh, the trigger pullers, if you will, the, the folks um, that, were, that were in Bagram uh, or in Baghdad and so on, or the other smaller uh, units. We had operations that we were doing with small units that were across the, the, uh, across the spectrum of our, of our counterterrorism operations. So we had sent people there. So when you have people out in the field, you're very tuned to the needs and requirements and, and the life and health of that individual. So, uh, you know, if a call comes in at two in the morning, you work at two in the morning. My job, which was, you know, at the times a little challenging, was to get that bureaucracy that came in at seven o'clock in the morning and worked till five, three in the afternoon, eight and a half hour government day, which is what the government required uh, from a civilian. Um, you know, my time in the military was 24 seven, you're on duty 24 seven. So understanding that and for me to adapt and, uh, and, and appreciate the, the community I was going into and the talent of people was interesting. So yeah, there were times I had to back off and, and, and take my time, but there are other times when I would ramp up our people. So the recruitment, hiring, managing, uh, programmatics, um, the funding, um, you know, the operational focus sometimes went to where we had people 24-7 at work um, and we had uh, bases and ops everywhere. And, and, and that was, um, I think, DI was comfortable with a, for a while with me doing that. And then after a while, they said, uh, you know, you're too aggressive. And when I first was hired, and I like to tell this story, DI said, um, you, I, they asked me to write a program. And I interviewed with, like, there was five or six other people that they interviewed for this position. Um, one of the guys, actually, I knew, he was an Army Lieutenant Colonel that I had served with in Bosnia, you know, 15 years before. And he said, oh, yeah, this is your job. I, you know, I know it. This is you. This is what you've been doing all your career. Um, and it might have been, but it, I got the job. So they said, here's what we want to do. You're, we have uh, billets that we want you to develop, manpower, hire, you know, bring people together of 47, but we're only going to give you 17. We're going to take those other people that you bring in and we're going to shift them into other programs that we can't quite get the support to fund or to, to staff. But you've got a great idea. So we're going to borrow some of your people that you can bring in. 
along with the money, the money that you generate because you have great ideas and, and Congress wants to fund it, Department of Defense wants to fund it, other agencies want to get in on it and, and like, give you money. We're going to take a little bit of that as well so we can fund other programs that aren't quite as getting the attention that you're getting. I'm like, well, so you want me to do the job that I laid out bare bones with a number of bare bones people and bare bones money, you want me to cut that by almost a third, or I mean almost a half to almost a third, 40% of what I thought was my bottom line and still do the operations? They said, yeah, we want like four operations in 18 months. We want you to fund and get out the door in four operations. I said, all right. Any other restrictions? Any other? I said, nope, do whatever. So um, I was able to recruit and hire more people than they thought. Um, squirrel people away at other organizations, kind of, you know, that they, that the headquarters didn't know were there. Um, I took the money that they had and I doubled it, went out and found other supporters and I ended up doing six operations in six months. So we were, you know, almost, you know, again, 40% more operations and, you know, 30 and 75% less time. Um, and that was overwhelming to them, but we had support from Navy. We were, again, I, I had learned to do that <clears throat> across my career using other people's money. You know, you always do that. You always want to do other people's money, other people's people. But again, DIA uh, had that vision from the leadership, uh, the, the directors that I, I briefed and, and the other people in DOD, the Secretary of Defense that I knew had worked with and, and others, I knew wanted this done. So the ideas that we came up with, the people I worked with, you know, um, were really supportive of getting that going. And DI eventually got up to speed a little bit on that. And then, you know, I think they've been ramping down a little bit on that uh, with different directors that would come in. Uh, different, over the time and, and different focuses now that DIA and, and the Department of Defense is doing. But it kind of mirrored a lot of what I had done for the last 15 years or so in my military career. I just kind of ported that over to DIA. Can you explain what an operation entails? Give us an example. Absolutely. So an operation is, is really comes up with an idea or, or a threat or a, a situation that needs addressing. Okay, um, and, and I'll we'll give a, a quick example. Um, one of the things we knew for Al Qaeda is that they were very localized. They, you know, they didn't have like huge networks. They weren't like the military that you could track and put a, a, a Gantt chart up and see every, where everything goes. It was like, you know, somebody in, in, in um, uh, say, Talifar, Iraq, had an operation, had a small cell uh, and had no uh, relation to Baghdad. They actually talked to someone in Abu Dhabi or whatever. So it was very interesting to pull that together. So when we were looking at, you know, when we find an organization, we find a threat organization, threat group uh, that we wanted to track and figure out where they're going and do that stuff and find out how we can collect intelligence on them. Information, information that becomes intelligence because information is, the information is huge. So we look at all the different intelligence ways, signals intelligence, electrical intelligence, human intelligence, um, uh, imagery intelligence, um, you know, emanations. It was something called Mazit. Um, um, M-A-S-I-N-T, and it was, um, and it's actually who I work with, it's a magic organization. I just called it magic and sorcery because I did, it was all telemetry. It was all little emanations that, that, that the, these million dollar heads from Johns Hopkins and, and MIT and Cal Poly were all doing in formulas that would, you know, go around the room 20 times. And I'd go, okay, tell me how I get that. What's the bottom line and how do I operationalize it? That was what I did. Tell me what you need and how your technology will do it, and then I'll operationalize it. And that's what I did. So we would take an, you know, a, a, um, a requirement, a need. Somebody say, I need to find out what that organization in Talfar, Iraq, is doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, money laundering, uh, support for terrorism, and movement of, of terrorist personnel. And it's you know, two or three at a time. But every one could be the, the, the one important person that we use to link into an organization, say, for you know, Osama bin Laden's higher, you know, or, or his, his 
inner circle, you know, because you never knew. So, um, so what we did, one of the things we did was we said, okay, we need to figure out what to do. So, um, uh, this is actually a well, I can go forever on this story alone. But um, I was actually working in Europe at the time. Um, the requirement came in; they were kicking it around at DIA. They couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Um, they had some technical people, some developers trying to develop a system, but they didn't have an integrator to in move it into operations. How do you actually get it out the door and into the field? And how do you get the information from that piece of equipment to somebody who can analyze it and then you know paint the picture, build that mosaic? Um, so they had, you know, it, it was a real, they needed someone to come in and, and put it together. So they asked me to come from Europe, fly over, spend a week reviewing it, make my recommendations on how to do it and then fly back. So I did. And I went to a, a test site and I saw what they were doing and, you know, made my fairly caustic criticism of what was going on with this program from the engineers to the operational development side of it. Made my report, briefed the seniors on a Friday afternoon, got on a plane to fly back to Germany at eight o'clock that night. Got in at 11 o'clock in the morning in the streetcar the next day. My wife, <laughs> you're kidding. My wife is, uh, is waiting for me at the airport and says, <laughs> you just got, <laughs> I love animals, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you just got a call from DC. They really like what you're doing, uh, but they want to put you in charge of the program now. So you got to fly back. So for the next seven and a half months, uh, I was on an operation. So what, we, so what I went back to do was to organize the technical development side of, of the requirement. What do we do? to collect the information. What kind of technical stuff do we need? Um, and we test stuff out, build new things as we need it. And then we went and looked at funding and manpower. Okay, this is what we need to do. And then we tore apart the elements of that collection process. Okay, we're gonna collect, say we're gonna collect voice prints and we're gonna compare them to people we knew before, compare them to folks that have come from another agency back to where we're sharing the whole, you know, um, national director of national intelligence and the intelligence sharing piece that we're supposed to be doing. So let's do that. But I need someone who actually can, can tell me that it's important or that's a woman's voice or a man's voice. You know, maybe we need that. Uh, who can speak um, Arabic and Farsi? Because, you know, we knew that there were other, you know, uh, Iranian things that were influenced or um, what other uh, dialect we might need. We could identify that. So we needed to build a language capability and I needed to build collection capability. I needed to build a training capability on how we get it out to the people that are going to actually put it in the field and hide it in places. Um, get to the point where it basically said, uh, Marty, you've got more experience than anybody else in doing that. You're going to go 50 years old. You're going to actually go do the operation and plant this material in, in the building where we're going to go out and, and want to collect this. So I'm out with 19 and 20 year old Marines who have been on their second and some third you know, deployment into Iraq. And I'm out there training day to day. And then we figured out what tools we need to actually do it, how we train, uh, I, I, you know, um, trained the people and worked with the people that trained and uh, built this cadre of folks I could, you know, work with and support. And we went off and did the mission. So I spent months in, in Iraq training with this Marine uh, uh, reconnaissance unit and until we got integrated enough to do it. We went and did the operation. Um, we were successful enough, except that when I was going into the building, you know, to slide in and, and, and go through the overhead and, and put this thing in, I fell through the ceiling. And we found, yeah, of course, you know. Oh my God, was, yeah. are you serious? Oh yeah, I, yeah, it was overhead. It was, you know, a supported ceiling and we were trying to stay on the metal studs, but you know, it was old and falling apart. It was an old like gas station restaurant kind of a thing on, on a highway in, in the Western part of Iraq. Fell down and as I fell down, I get on the floor and I'm kind of stunned. Um, I have a sidearm with me. I have equipment, but so I don't have any long gun or anything you know, like that, but I do have my personal protection. And I look and there under this little rack, there's two Iraqi guards, I guess, sleeping. 
you know, they looked, they were, looked to be civilians, but they certainly were part of the organization that we knew was a nefarious organization, let's put it that way. So the Marines came in right behind me, came down to make sure that he saw those guys. Those guys were stunned as I was. They didn't expect us there. I didn't expect to see them there. We thought the, the building had been cleared. And um, and so we eliminated that that situation. We moved on to our business, came back. And, but because of the time and everything we went through, the operational uh, thing, we had to worry about getting in and getting out. So we have your, have your support element. You have your transportation unit set up. You have your medical standby. You have a quick reaction force in case we're in trouble that we get you know, ambushed or something, uh, and we need someone to come in and help you know, extract us. So all those are parts of it, um, and and nothing gets done just walking into a building saying, "Hey, I'm going to be doing an operation with you next week." So no, you have to get the trust and an understanding and and the buy-in of the organization you're going to work with. So it takes months and sometimes years. The funny part about this is we had a few months to go over and I met some of the people and so on. And the commander at the time of the Marine Reconnaissance, First Reconnaissance Battalion that was in charge um, was a six foot four Marine uh, from uh, Louisiana, from the Bayou country and who became a big surfer when he was stationed on the West Coast. Six foot four guy with a, you know, the Marine haircut with a little blonde streak down the middle because he was a surfer dude, Lieutenant Colonel. Turns out that he had trained under my brother in the Marine Corps so you have that connection. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're Gunnar Lindenmeyer's brother. Oh, okay. And and so, you know, that was kind of an in. We got talking. Of course, I knew a bunch of the other Marines that you work for in the intelligence com community and that I had deployed with and worked with in when I was in the military. So um, again, it's a, it's a, it's a um, organization building. It's the belief that you're here to help. And, and it's that sometimes that personal uh, relationships you build that gets trust and you get support and things can happen a little bit easier. It's not like you got to prove yourself every day, you, you know, okay. All right. So you're from that organization. I, I kind of understand you've got that background. I understand it. These people are, are, you know, vouching for you. We can do that, but all that's all part of it. And sometimes it go, takes longer to do that. And other times, if you have time and at the time, you know, back in 2007, there wasn't much time. It was get this done, the opportunity. So anyway, so we did, uh, did our thing, um, on the way back, uh, we were ambushed seven times, um, but we were able to get through it all with ID attacks and, and sniper fire and all that stuff. We were able to get back with our contingent of, of, of the Marine uh, uh, Recon uh, Battalion guys without one injury. We didn't have a hangnail. We didn't have, except for me, bruising my hip, falling out of the, you know, but that was my own fault, more or less. I was just old, but 50. But at that point, I realized, you know, this is time for younger guys to do this. So, um, but we did the operation. We were in play for a while. Situation changed. The operation kind of reached its, its zenith and, and its, you know, ability. And so we moved on to something else. But we took the lessons learned, which we always built from that, from literally how you, you know, how you develop the technology with the engineers so that we're not wasting time there. How do we do the training and the checkout? How do we, you know, schedule um, the planning cycle and, and get things done before we actually get into, into combat? How do you work, work relationships with the combat unit you're going to work with? Uh, how do you hire the right people in and make sure you have the right team that goes forward, uh, that people are there the whole time? I mean, there was a couple of guys that were critical to me that ended up, have already had leave approved on the civilian side for a wedding in Australia. And so the middle of it all they left and so we scrambled to make up which is fun you know we knew a little bit we had a couple of months to work through that i wasn't happy but i heard it but because they were really sharp guys and i wanted to work with them. but i understood and you know in the civilian side it's not like the military you can just cancel the leave and make them stay there um in this course you kind of have to deal with it differently but but again all that is part of training and planning and understanding and, and educating and learning so but we uh, we took lessons learned from that both on the technical side the personal relationship side the funding transportation, training, development, and then the next operation learned from that and, and go on. And that's how 
kind of you know how we do it in time to time. So that's kind of how an operation generally gets worked out, at least that way. So that would be the thing that TV and the movies get wrong in that. Chloe, uh, let's go do this thing right now in two hours. Beam it down to my phone. That isn't happening. Yeah, there are some of those that, that move quickly, but it, but it's there's a lot of background to that. So TV, you know, I watch um, um, uh, Seal, uh, Seals or whatever it is on TV. I've seen a few of those. The uh, protagonist, the, the actor that plays that, actually his son went to uh, play hockey here in, in South Kent, where I live in Kent, Connecticut. Um, and we used to see him in town. We used to go like years ago anyway strap on the skates and play hockey with him and he had nothing to do when he was visiting. Um, uh, and uh, David uh, Borum, I think his name Orianus. is. Orianus. Right. Yeah, I know yeah. that because he played Angel. Angel. I was going to say, it had the Angel or NCIS, you know, because he did, or uh, not NCIS, FBI, whatever it was, but, or uh, what was it? Um, no, he played the, uh, it wasn't FBI. It was the other show he was in. Anyway, but Angel, yeah. David Borealis, yeah. Um, but he, yeah, so, um, but they do a lot of work in, in the military because they want to be portrayed somewhat sensibly and somewhat accurately, they do have uh, a, a huge Hollywood contingent that go out and, and meet with people. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, when I mentioned being on, on the uh, aircraft carrier uh, in the Enterprise 84, when we came back from that cruise, um, um, they were filming the last part of, of the first Top Gun on the cruise. So we came in, a friend of mine who was the uh, uh, operations officer for the helicopter unit, heavy lift unit that was on the carrier at the time, of the 53s, um, I worked my way into going back out to watch them film that last scene where they're on the air, you know on the aircraft carrier around the F-14. Everybody's high fiving everybody, and it was after the operation. And that's I went out to watch that. So we were up on, on the uh, like the 08 level, 07 level, watching down on the, on the uh, you know the crew doing that. So there's a lot of that goes on, um, and um, and that helps. You know, it helps portray the military in a different light. It helps, you know, get people to be interested in what's going on. But yeah, the two hour or the one hour, or the 30 minute episode, there's a lot more that goes into it. Yeah. It's a lot of it's mind numbing and long-term, but, uh, but some of that, uh, you know, there's one show, I guess it was, um, and this is the civilian side, um, um, Jack Ryan that appeared on, I think it was. Um, oh, Amazon. Yeah. Amazon. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's the one that I can't take. That was because I worked on operations in, in counter-drug in South America. And I worked in the Middle East on those exact things. And there's not some bone, you know, beam counter that goes and does that. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, even the CIA doesn't have their guys that do that. And some of it, I just didn't understand the premise of, of the show or the, you know, the actual operation that they're trying to do. But anyway, but that's the only, that's the only real show I've seen lately that I'm like, yeah, this doesn't really portray anything at all in reality. But anyway. There's a show called Madam Secretary that is actually uh, on the other side, on the State Department. Giuliani played that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking that the DIA and the State Department, although at odds with each other, maybe also must work very, very closely with each other. You're absolutely, and I can tell you a, a, a quick story on that one too. Um, you're right. Uh, at odds, it's, it's like the State Department wants, uh, you know, they have the military attache person under them and any military uh, organization that comes into country works for the ambassador. And so the State Department, you know, is very much involved. And there's a lot of folks that want to limit the military in there. A lot of them have to coordinate. Um, granted, the military with a bunch of young guys go into a country to do an operation and they do stupid things. You know, they might, you know, uh, drink too much and, and drive quick up and down the road. They might, you know, typically Marines, you know, fall in love with the local people and and uh, and get in trouble that way or, or they just in an operation or they just don't understand the culture they're going into. And there's so the State Department really does try to help out 
that, but there's a lot of things that go on. But DIA, um, we, um, when I was um, at the U.S. Africa Command, when it first stood up in 2007, my wife was actually the first um, acting director of intelligence at the time, building the organization that became the U.S. Africa Command's uh, Intelligence Support Division, ISD. And, um, and I went in to be the first collection manager. Now, my job was a little bit more focused on the threats. I was in the Al-Qaeda, the Maghreb, Mali. Um, um, uh, we were in, in Djibouti. We were in other countries, Uganda, chasing all the different threats at the time. So working with the, the State Department was critical for us to be able to get operations in there because we wanted to work closely with the host nation. We needed to work closely with the host nation military and their government, which sometimes is the same, sometimes it's different. Um, you know, so... Um, and, and with the, without the State Department, a lot of bad things happened. When I went to uh, um, Rwanda in 84, in 94, excuse me, during the massacre, we had evacuated everybody from the U.S. State Department out of Rwanda into Bujumbura, uh, Burundi. And when we came in, we went into Uganda, but then into Rwanda on our own, the military uh, assessment team called ESAT at the time that we did the investigation of what do we need to do. The Special Operations Command that I worked at came in and dumped food that was really poorly planned and, and so on. So bad things happened because we didn't have the State Department. But a lot of the operations I did um, and, and I recommended to uh, the National um, uh, Operational Authority for collections, um, uh, intelligence collections across the continent of Africa, the 53, 54 countries with South Sudan at the time, um, I had to go through State Department for everything I did. So every plan I built had State Department right up front. And I went and briefed uh, Secretary Clinton. I briefed um, her deputies, the Undersecretary of, of, of State, excuse me, Undersecretary of State for African Affairs, Ambassador Johnny Carson. I'd actually briefed him when he was ambassador in Kenya years before on another operation when I was in the military. Um, uh, the Undersecretary, Assistant Undersecretary of State, or Assistant Secretary of State for Sub-Saharan Africa Affairs was um, Ambassador Don Yamamoto. I had briefed him in Ethiopia. Uh, on operations when he was the ambassador there. So we had a connection. So you build the connection. That's the whole point of, of where seniority and, and, and looking out for these chances to go work outside of your DOD bubble, you know, your military bubble, the Navy, or just joint or whatever. You need to get out and work with other organizations. Um, it was important for us to be able to do operations and support countries and and, and support our relations building, which was what the U.S. Africa Command did uh, in, in Africa itself. Uh, we didn't have military bases on the continent. We had operations we supported, um, but that was it. Everything else we needed to do was in conjunction with what the national command authority, president and the secretaries of state and defense and all really thought we needed to do. So it was, it was a lot more high level. We did, you know, we did some operational support stuff, but a lot of it was really based on working with state department. So I had a lot of chance to work with ambassadors, um, uh, uh, charge affairs um, across the, the continent, the North part anyway, um, the sub-Saharan and Saharan from Algeria all the way down to Chad. I mean, I name all the countries I went to, but all that and really worked in relation with state department. So yeah, our relationship became very tight. Uh, with the State Department. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think most everybody did uh, the work that they do and, and uh, the importance that it plays for us to have that, that close relationship. You talked about briefing Secretary Clinton, uh, and it says that the DIA provides a quarter of all the intelligence in the president's book on a daily basis. Two-part right. question. Did you ever brief the president and did you have to speed up or slow down the way you talk? Because you talk really fast. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm trying to get everything in in the time allotted to me. And yeah, yeah, that was it. Um, I do talk fast. You're right. I, I, I grew up upstate New York. Everything was relaxed, not a downstater. So I don't know why I got that. But um, I did not, I, I did a brief. I briefed um, 
in a briefing with President Clinton in Rwanda um, when he gave us the charge and he was on there with his crisis development team uh, and so on in 94. Um, I briefed um, President um, George Bush uh, 43. Um, I briefed a lot of other senior people, but George Bush himself on an operation that we had um, directly. Um, and then I briefed uh, President Obama's senior staff in 2009 as he was coming into office. Um, when we had all the senior intelligence agency people, I represented the U.S. Africa Command, I think because of some of my background and stuff, and actually briefed that. And so his briefing, again, we put the briefing together, briefed his team, and, and he was at the end of it. So, you know, directly, um, really only a couple presidents. Um, but, yeah, certainly the, the senior level, I mean, all the way up through, uh, yeah, secretaries right and left of defense, you know, from early 80s in, in Iceland before President Reagan came up for his Iceland um, you know, conversation uh, with Gorbachev. Um, you know, we briefed Casper um, uh, Weinberger and his nephew happened to be a guy that worked for me. If you can believe that. Uh, yeah, his wife, his mother, this guy, this Navy chief's mother was Casper Weinberger's wife's sister. So that was the relationship. And so he came up. So we got to brief him. And that was pretty cool for a young officer in the middle of nowhere to actually brief Cap Weinberger. You know, he was a legend. But um, yeah, so I briefed uh, about every Secretary of Defense, I think, since the early 80s at some point. Do you really get your full time or do you have to encapsulate it in 60 oh, seconds? Very much. Um, I used to, you know, I put together, it, it, there's there's a um, kind of a, uh, I guess, an operational, operational intelligence uh, handbook that says here, you know, you when you get more senior, you, you brief less, you know, one piece of paper. So when I briefed the president, it was three things on the piece of paper. And that had been cut down from like the eight things I had from Secretary Rumsfeld when I briefed them or the undersecretary um, that I briefed, which may have been two pages or to the uh, undersecretary of defense for intelligence, uh, an army three star. Um, he took my briefing and literally tore it in half and threw it up in the air and said, you know, build me three pages right now. You know, I only want three pages of like the 10 I had, which was more background. I mean, you know, and it was like, wow. And, and we got to, literally got down on the floor, the general myself, and we grabbed, to, you know, what we thought were each three pages, put them together and then made a brief out of that. You know, kind of weird. But um, so, yeah, so um, I briefed those people. I used to do give a lot of uh, at the end of my career when I was the uh, chief science and technology officer, operational integration to the analysis piece of the Middle East Africa uh, analysis center, MARC, they called it, um, uh, Re Middle East Africa Regional Center is what they call this, MARC. Um, uh, we prepared, those analysts prepared things on, uh, on Africa, um, all CENTCOM, uh, the operations that were going on from the national level. And they would write the, the uh, analytical piece that would go be submitted to be included in the presidential daily briefing, the PDB. I didn't really care. I mean, I just wanted to go to the, I would, but for an analyst, for a, 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 an analyst who is, is published, you know, like a, like a university professor, their thing is to get into that PBD. That that's you have a PBD that's on the wall. That's the eight thousand you know foot by eight thousand foot plaque that you go in there that you were in the PBD in the state. And here's who read it. And it's funny because the PBD gets passed to every who has a clearance. Almost every senior cabinet member has it. So the Secretary of Agriculture may ask you about you know poppy and drug trade in the uh, Hindu Kush area. So if you're writing on that, that's who it goes to. And the president never sees it, but it's in the PD, PBD, and, but it goes to some sec, undersecretary of agriculture and they check it out and read it and, you know, get some information on it. And so that's how it works, you know, so transportation, a lot of more transportation because of the, the military sea lift command, the connection between the military and civilian transportation uh, world, especially after 9-11 when you're worrying about air threats, ground threats, um, 
you know, ocean threats, things like that. So yeah, interesting. I want to get your take on something that's in the news right now that I think we need your take to explain something to us. So classified documents, very much in the news right now. I don't want to get into any of the who said, we we said. I I want to understand from you, why are documents classified and what is the level of of classified in terms of documents that you may pass on? Sure. Um, So there's, there's, a couple things. There's classification, which is a marking that's put on a document based on the information it contains and the methods and sources that were used to obtain that information. So say, you know, a, a human intelligence person who's high level government official in a foreign country that's been turned by, you know, the, the spy making business. You've seen those movies and, and they're, they're somewhat true. Uh, or, you know, they're, they're true enough, I think, for understanding. Um, that's very important to never disclose who that person is or how you get that information but the information itself because of what the information contains you kind of figure out might come from someone who really is in the know who might be in the inner circle of a foreign um you know uh, president or, or dictator whatever it may be so uh, that gets classified at a certain level um there's what they call a clearance a clearance level which is what an individual is cleared to get information up to a certain you know piece there's top secret secret uh, confidential and then unclassified or government official use only and then unclassified. Um, it seems everything that comes out in the press either gets starts with a secret classification. And we used to see that. We used to see CNN reports, and then we get it three hours later as a classified report from some analyst who puts it together and re- rebroadcasts it. You know, kind of ridiculous. But um, but what you have is now you have a classification of material. Then you have a clearance that you're given to be able to look at stuff. Then you have access to certain things. So in that clearance, everything that's top secret, I didn't get to see everything that was top secret or SCI, special compartment, there was different levels of top secret and special compartmented intelligence, which usually usually had to do with specialized intelligence methods to do it, which might involve human intelligence or or other you know stuff that we can't take about and talk about, which is the technical side of how we collect information around the world and around the universe, if you will. So um, having the access to that uh, really means that you've been checked out, that you have the clearance and you have the access and the need to know for a specific job. Now, you may last for six months. It may last a lot of my uh, read-ins when I left the military and retired eventually from the government service. I spent hours getting read out of programs I had forgotten that I was even you know, authorized to look at that I didn't have a need for, I didn't have a need to know about, but I'd never been cleared from. So formally, officially, I had to be read out of this program. They wouldn't tell you what the program was. They just said, you're no longer Okay. Yeah. What does it mean? What does it mean to be read out? Okay, that you no longer are allowed access to that. You read out your clearance is reduced. Your access, your not clearance, but your access is reduced. Your there's a lot of things you get in, in NATO programs, and there's stuff that we use in NATO. So you get NATO clearance stuff. If I'm not working in NATO anymore, I have no need for that information. So they read you out. They clear you no more to get that information. So if you try to go on electronically and go in and look at that stuff, it says not you're blocked from it. You know, you have no access to it. So that's what it means, read on and read, you got read on a lot. They brief you and this is the material you're gonna get and this is what it's all about. And this is why it's so important. This is the classification. And here's the level, the pieces of that information you're gonna get. You're gonna get six of the 35 levels in that. So it's all, you know, specialized, um, uh, specially uh, coded for certain activities. And again, you may get it for a mission. You may get it for an assignment, you know, three-year assignment or 10-year assignment, whatever it may be in the civilian side. You may get it for the daily work that you produce, that you produce a piece to it. Um, that gets added to it, you know, that helps explain it or, or develop it. So um, that's what all that is. So um, 
So when a pre- president gets everything, you know, obviously they get everything and anything they ever want. Um, and so do some senators on, on the intelligence, the, um, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence or House uh, uh, Committee on Intelligence get different things at different levels. And all they need to do is get elected. And then they go through a background check. They do a cursory background check on them. And But by the virtue of your your office as president and as, as elected official, you often get you know access to the stuff. So um, that's how it is. In the military, you go through an extensive you know tr- check. They start <laughs> when I first got my clearance. It's a kind of funny story. Um, uh, at the time, there's uh, there used to be a defense uh, DI defense intelligence system service would go do the investigations. But when I came in the early uh, in the 80s. Um, the FBI did it out of like Syracuse. I think there was an FBI office and they went around and they checked stuff out. There was no electronics. You couldn't get in and look at everything on, on social media about me. You know, they didn't have anything then, but they had sheriff's records in New York state, you know, police records. And did I, how many tickets I had and was I ever arrested for any, you know, anything like that? They could check on you, but they also do personal interviews. So they went to Oswego, of course, because I just came out of four years of college. Where did, and usually it's like the last five to seven years. Where did you live? I lived in a small town, Newport, New York. You know, high school, 300 kids, blah, blah, blah. Nothing much going on. Farm community. I was lived on a farm. Yeah, they're not going to find anything. I didn't do anything there. Yeah, maybe, you know, drank and you know, drove at 16 or 15. Of course, we were drinking before then. But, you know, I'm saying. But in college, it's a whole different thing. You know, were you involved with any, you know, political organization that is against the United States? Those get more serious. But also, what's your lifestyle? What, you know, like President Clinton, the whole thing about, I didn't inhale. I tried pot, I didn't inhale. Well, like, you know, high school and college, yeah, we were doing all kinds of weird things. So when you fill out your, they call it SF-86, which is your, your background information, where did you live, who did you associate with, what organizations were you part of, and did you ever do this? Were you ever arrested? Did you ever do drugs? Did you ever do this? Did you ever beat anybody, did you, you know, severely or whatever? I mean, all the kind of things that you put in. And basically, they ask you to tell everything up front that, that they may find out. So my advice that I got from my recruiter was put down everything you did. Don't hide anything because the worst you can do is lie. Uh, or not. So I filled out reams of paper about my time at, you know, at Sigma Takai and, and uh, living in Seneca dorm. You go through a huge background check and you go through every five years and update. The civilians don't necessarily do that. I mean, they, again, when you're selected, you're selected, not, not the civilians do it if you're a civilian employee, but if you're a government official elected to the United States Congress, or the president or appointed to one of the cabinet members, you get a, a background check, but it's, you know, by virtue of you being president, you get access to stuff. So, so holding things, taking things and so on to want to bring that to look at it later, understandable. In the military, I had to prosecute people as a legal officer. I was a legal officer in some of my commands who took material home or we found that they had misplaced it or hadn't, hadn't handled it correctly or got, you know, caught talking about stuff they shouldn't talk about that were classified at the time. Um, and then investigations be formed and people, you know, went to uh, Leavenworth over that. And, and No way. Instances. Wait, no, oh, yeah. you got to stop right there. Wait a minute. People talked to somebody you found out and they went to Leavenworth? Oh, absolutely. If you, if you disclose classified information that you've been briefed on that, you know, has a classification level that's not to be shared, where it's, it's a, you know, any kind of classification level and you start sharing it. Oh yeah, this is the mission I went on. This is where our target was. This is the, how we developed the target. This is who talked to us about it. Oh yeah, you're going to jail. I mean, you know, the WikiLeaks, um, the, um, uh, what was the, uh, the army, I forgot his name right now, but the army uh, specialist that was working with WikiLeaks that would disclose it all 
that guy went to prison, you know, for a while anyway, and, and, uh, you know, went from there. So, and so, and there are, uh, in, in the press reporting on this, this current um, intelligence uh, material issue going on with, uh, with President Trump and President Biden and, and Secretary or uh, Vice President Pence and others, um, you know, that's, it, it happens all the time. There are instances where somebody brought it home inadvertently. They may have brought it home maybe to sell it. Or got caught doing espionage. So, yeah, they went in, in, and espionage isn't necessarily the sneaky stuff you see. It could be just the idea that you sequestered classified material where it wasn't supposed to be. It's supposed to be locked up, kept under control. But because at the times it was pieces of paper, you know, you, you got pieces of paper, and it's hard to control paper. And sometimes you needed to copy it and, and move it on, or parts of it to, for a report to write up a a, a, paper, a paper for the presidential daily brief or something, and where somebody else is briefing a general's brief or command brief, you know, uh, on operations in the Middle East or South Africa or Japan or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, it's tough to control the paper. So, and that's the trust in, in that you go through and that's the security. And that's when you raise your hand and say, I will support and defend the constitution. And when you sign all these papers to get read on, as I said, to some classification program, it says right there, I will not discuss this. I will not talk to it. I will ensure someone else, if I talk to you about a program that I'm in, a special program, um, and, and I don't know that you're part of that program. I have to check with, there's a the security organization apparatus that you can check, special security office said, Hey, does that person, does he have that, does D have that clearance to talk about this? Oh yeah. Yeah. She was right on, you know, she came from another office. You don't know her, but yeah, she's right on. And when we would do that together. So yeah, I know I could talk to you about it, but if it was like, Oh no, D doesn't, she's not right into that program. Okay. I can't talk to you about that. I could talk to you maybe about this, but when you get too far down, I can't stop talking so that's kind of what the clearances, access, the communications, the intelligence program really is all about. And it's, it's very important. Do we overclassify stuff? Sure. You know, like I was telling you, I would see reports on CNN or Sky News or something back when we first started putting televisions in their intel centers. CNN became a, a huge intelligence um, uh, 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 it's bellwether for what's going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When we found out about uh, Rwanda, it was going in Rwanda at the time. We didn't have anybody down there. We had a visiting attache that would fly in every now and then. He was working several countries, but he wasn't, I don't think he was headquartered in Kigali. If he had been, I think we, they moved out in April. This is now we're talking like June, July when the massacre started occurring. And, and Christian Allen Poor from CNN was reporting and saying, where's the United States? Where's the nation? Where's the world? Uh, you know, handling this massacre, this, this, this whole uh, nihilism that's going on, this, you know, the whole um, destruction of, of, of the people uh, in, in Rwanda. And so it was like, wow, we got to figure that out. So, um, you know, but those reports all of a sudden came back in and got classified. And we're like, wait a second, did I just read this in the paper? But, you know, you couldn't. And that was the worst part about it is you're not supposed to talk about it now because it got classified because it was maybe linked to some other information. But we, we gather a lot of intelligence from the press. Um, there's more people on the earth that are doing day-to-day -day work that can you can find stuff out from just by talking to them. Um, and that's spawned a whole new intelligence program called Open Source Intelligence. Newspaper articles, television, radio, um, you know, Twitter feeds, um, Facebook accounts, you know, discussions of family members and think, oh, you know, Joe, Joe Blow, uh, German guy was, you know, visiting family in Turkey. Oh, what's he doing in Turkey? Okay. Well, we were looking at him maybe as a, you know, as part of a criminal element in Turkey. Oh, okay. Where did he go? He's there three days, but he's only at the party one day. Ah, but we got that from a press release or something or somebody's Facebook account. Um, not that we track U.S. or U.S. civilians, we're not allowed to track U.S. civilian information. But if it's broadcast out in the open around the world, 
it comes across a desk. We have to classify it, tell us where we got it from, make sure we're not tracking somebody. We don't track your personal information. It may, I mean, the big thing was um, NSA was, the National Security um, Agency was accused. Their job is to monitor telecommunication systems and so on around the world to find out what people are thinking and talking about, right? Uh, basically to see if there's a threat coming up. People talking about, you know, in code about bombing, you know, the, the, the White House or something, which they do, or to do cyber. Um, you know, to take down um, and, and do, uh, take down, say, a hospital and, and do a cyber terrorism or cyber hostage situation. Um, so anyway, um, they monitor, but they, while they're collecting stuff, they collect, obviously, if you talk to your cousin in Germany and, we're, and, and you use certain words that are keyed, which may be just innocent, it'll come up. They'll do, you know, a cursory, um, uh, say, an AI review. They won't go in there and look at these, every call you've ever made to anybody, you know, the old boyfriends are digging them up, girlfriends or whatever it may be. And, you know, they don't they don't have the manpower to do that, but they do with AI have a way to sort through and find out there's a pattern of calls made to people that were numbers all of a sudden come together with a bad guy's number from Pakistan to somebody that you talk to that goes through. And all that is, you know, it's called link analysis and you have to do that. So anyway. I, I thought if they're watching me right now, they're watching me closer because of the research I did about you. <laughs> well, it, that triggers sometimes uh, information. Sure. It, but uh, I don't think, uh, I think I've been away long enough. They're going to know that. Oh, that's Marty Lynn America. No. Ah, yeah. she's just researching Marty. That's right. He's just making trouble at the university. Do you think when you hear these stories about the classified documents, do you think we're making too big of a deal about it? Or do you actually almost take it personally because you actually created classified documents you hit it right on the head i do take it very personally and, and i do not think we're taking it too lightly or too seriously i think um the i okay you said not to get political i don't want to get political but um the what we brief what we what the intelligence community and what the national security community briefs the president on how important these things are for the apparent and this is alleged you know obviously it's apparent only because we're seeing this in the press we don't exactly know what's going on we don't see the report from fbi and all that but what i've seen and of my 40 some years in this business now almost 50 years oh God, it's getting there. anyway <laughs> um i just see a blatant disregard for the um, security and um the obligation of the individual and whoever may be it, president trump to not do what they did uh, with their material. I don't believe President Biden putting a couple, you know, a, um, a couple of uh, envelopes or whatever in his garage is any worse or any better than what potentially President Trump did. But the cover-up, it's always the cover-up. It's the, oh no, I, we're fine. We don't have any more. Whether he's telling his, his lawyers, we don't have any more, we're fine until the FBI actually raid it because they've got information that leads them to believe that there is more. When he didn't go out there now, yeah, and the big excuse is, well, there's 30 big, huge boxes and there's maybe 117 individual documents maybe that are in that huge box. Yeah, it looks bad on CNN and we know that there are people, the press and everybody else has adversarial relationships sometimes with, with certain political entities and they may put, make paint it different. But the issue is, the president and his staff should have never put any classified documents in something he has from, you know, his golf tournaments or, or you know, a State Department dinner where they gave out tchotchkes, you know, uh, from Iran or Turkey or whatever it is. There's no way you mix that stuff together. You're told that time and time again. And there are people that sit at the president's elbow that hand him stuff 
in classified briefcases and, and move it around. We, we have courier services. I've been a courier carrying classified material around the world. And there are certain protocols and things we do and stuff you do to make sure it doesn't get out. You know, it, sometimes documents have to be carried. Um, it's not electronic, but it can be protected as best we can electronically, but some of it is actual papers. But to put it and then to, you know, uh, to disregard the importance of that and then to falsely, apparently, pro, uh, you know, allegedly falsely portray it as, oh, no, it's no big deal. And, and then to make it look like you're talking to people with foreign connections, potentially about stuff that you might have in that, you know, classified pile. Yeah, I take it extremely personally because I've seen, you know, we've lost, you know, we've lost, so we've lost human beings, um, civilians and military people around the world, uh, our country, other countries to protect or develop or find that information that could go to help us make the world better. And, and I, you know, I believe so much. I know there's a, you know, the military and, and so on have lost some of the cachet in the world, I think, uh, because some scandals and other things that have happened because we're humans and we do stupid things. Humans are very real, do stupid things. But over my career and the many thousands, tens of thousands of people I've met, um, civilians, military, our country, other country, generally work, and, I, and I'll talk to our country civilians, really work to uphold the Constitution. Um, time and time again, um, we would see a president on both sides of the aisle who wanted to push a little agenda here and there and kind of like, well, I don't really, I mean, I personally got intelligence that senior people and in, in administrations have said, yeah, put that over there. We don't want to read it right now. But this is important because you're making decisions and you need to, no, we don't want to hear about that. We only want this narrative. Okay. And then, you know, okay, but that's his president's decision. Now, I, I can respect that. I don't like it. I believe maybe their decision is wrong. All right. I have that opinion now. Um, and I do put that on in my classroom sometimes, but, um, but to take it and, and then hide it or move material around or, or sequester it in your garage or your country club or whatever it is. Yeah, it, it, to me, that, that just it makes mockery of everything we're trying to do in this country to do it legally, to do it, you know, um, systematically, to do it within the laws, within, you know, in our in ability to support the Constitution of the United States, which is not to make it a personal issue, not to say it's about me or whatever. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, you know, anybody that keeps it has kept stuff down, you have a chance to give it back, give it back. Um, get, you know, come clean. I'm a Catholic. So confession is always a big thing in my life. You know, right. You, you have a chance to, to make amends for your, we all do make amends for things we do in our life. Generally we have a chance. And if you don't take that opportunity, then it's the cover up that you're going to get nailed for. And that seems to be what's going on right now. And yeah. And I, I appreciate you, you know, your, your perspective where you saw that it does. I do take it personally. Uh, you know, I devoted too much time, too much effort. I was very lucky to have gotten through some of the situations I got through. And, and, and I know that there are people that that I work with that didn't make it through. And, uh, and it just kind of, you know, it leaves that bad taste in my mouth. You fell through a ceiling. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Well, I've done many things. I've jumped out of airplanes, supposedly perfectly good airplanes, but the Air Force dumped me in a river once. It was, you know, I think, but no, I, but um, yeah. And I've been protected by people right and left and I've supported people right and left. And yeah, but falling out of that overhead, that was, you know, Marines took care of me on that occasion. So I was very happy about it. So what's interesting is we said we wouldn't talk about politics. And yet what really gets me about you is that you are actually running for office. And I understand because you have such a commitment to service and to this country. And yet sometimes to me, politics seems so dirty. What made you decide that you just wanted to go ahead and get involved? And run for the first selectman, the mayor type candidate. Um, years ago, when I first retired here, one of the things we did in the military is we move a lot. So to get involved it's very difficult to get involved in civic organizations. Even if I'm stationed in, like when we went to Washington, D.C., 
my first thought there, oh, I thought I'd have time to be involved with my kids' schools and maybe more like that because they're in high school and in sports and so on. But 9-11 hit and then, you know, it's gone for two years. So, um, but when I finally retired in 2014 and moved back to Kent, um, I was immediately contacted because I'm a new person in town. My mother or my wife's aunt was secretary at the school and said, we, we don't have a soccer coach this year. Can't find one of the left. Would you do that? So I said, uh, sure. And I knew about this much about soccer. But I was going to say you're Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, yeah, from the hockey community, but football too. But yeah, yeah, exactly. I was Ted Lasso for a while. You're exactly right. Before he moved to famous. Um, but I got in there, but I said, but my wife played soccer at University of Connecticut. My daughters played soccer. My youngest one was a goalie for a little while anyway at, at Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland. My um, oldest one played on a German team when she was younger. She was very athletic. So, yeah, I went to a lot of soccer. And I kicked the soccer ball around around the world, you know, um, and played against different countries and stuff. It was a lot of fun. But um, but teaching it and coaching it for in a middle school situation was difficult. But we had a great team. These kids were playing on three different levels. And, and so I thought, anyway, so I did that for a couple of years. And then there was an opening on the school board. And the principal approached me and said, listen, you know, we really like you to get you on the school board. We kind of like what you're doing in the school. We like your enthusiasm. I wanted to get more involved. And it wasn't really political, although our, our bylaws for the school board said there's three Democrats, three Republicans, six people total, which means that, you know, to potentially you could come into deadlock all the time, three to three, but, you know, um, but the way the, the rules work, if, you know, it, it didn't work, but anyway, um, but we got on there and I realized once I got on, yeah. So I, I was at the time Republican Republicans nominated a couple of different people. The school board itself at the time gets to choose. They take the nomination, but if they didn't like what the, you know, the political party had submitted the local political party, this is local too. So we're talking about, you know, Kent, everybody's neighbors, they all like each other. Well, probably half of them all related to each other too. One on one side, one on the other. Um, but um, so I got on and then uh, it was elected chair, vice chairman right away and then chairman because, hey, you live, I live literally a stone's throw from the, um, from the, the school and I could be there at any time and, and could be at the meetings and so on. And I had time because I wasn't working full time then. And, yeah. So it was interesting. Um, but I really enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed it because I didn't even know who the other, I mean, who the other parties were. We brought unaffiliated, which is kind of the independent here in Connecticut. We call it unaffiliated. We brought them on in, in place of a Republican person left and we brought an affiliated person on because it was the right person. It was smart and we loved it. So it got, that's kind of how it, it became when I started seeing the political side of it, the, the R's and D's or whatever else became K's. Kent, you know, who's in, in, you know, in favor of Kent? Who wants to help better Kent? And the ideas at this level are schools and transportation, sidewalks and um, right to farm laws. I mean, you know, things like that that are, are really non-controversial. They're not really political unless you really go at it and try to make it so and bring national level stuff down to the local level. Um, that's not what we need here. You know, school safety and things like that it crosses all party lines and so on. So um, anyway, um, I, I worked for five years on the school board, uh, felt I'd done what I needed to do. I, we, I did a lot of work on the, we did a lot of work on the physical plant, updating it. We have a capital plan where we look out five to 10 years of what needs replacing, start taxing for it in small amounts now. So by the time you need to put a new roof on or driveway or windows, whatever, you've got the money already put away so you're not bonding everything 
and the town is 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 it's not well not necessarily a wealthy town it's well off it can do that and if you plan this capital plan it, it works out so we did that so i worked very closely with the board of finance i worked closely with the selectmen uh who is the the town council if you will and the and the first selectman who had been a teacher at the school he had been a soccer coach he had my daughter on summers when she was off from school when we were in dc would come up here and work in summer camps and stuff so we knew each other very well he had been a republican became a democrat because it was kind of a democrat town um, you know, uh, and so on. So um, we worked well together and we worked with conservation commissions and board, planning and zoning boards and all the other boards and, and agencies and non, you know, uh, non-governmental private organizations that are around here. Um, that, that we worked with that, you know, the, the land trusts and, and the Le- American Legion or whatever need to do for the, you know, the veterans monument. So I started seeing this as not an issue that's really party-wise. Last few years um, through COVID and so on, we've had a, a group here that was on our board of selectmen um, that really struggled really to to move on. I think a lot of their background wasn't in leadership roles. They weren't in, in situations where um, they maybe had been in this before about how to build consensus and how to do communication. So they were struggling through. And with COVID, it put them in a, a terrible situation. Um, so um, a couple of years ago, when I had been off for a little while, I thought about maybe running to get involved with that to help bring the school, the town of, of uh, Kent's Board of Selectmen together because they were seemed overwhelmed by all the things people were bringing to them. Their agendas were not getting finished. They were going on for hours on meetings and never finishing the, the, the minute, the, the meeting itself. They weren't even approving minutes of meetings that were months before. So, you know, there wasn't even records of what they had done officially. And it was just, and it was kind of overwhelming. And so I said, we need to get in there and, and help bring a little rigor to the organization. A more just organization, just say, okay, guys, here's what we need to do to get together. Now, I've been a leader, and I learned it really growing up. But I learned a lot of it in Oswego, working with the administration, students in administration at the time in Oswego with Dr. Radley when she was first brought in. Um, I actually got to give the, the student speech for her, um, um, I was going to say inauguration, but for her uh, convocation, whatever, when she you know was uh, invested with the presidency. They had a big thing where everybody came from uh, Albany and stuff. But so understanding that you have to work with people and you can come from a different perspective, um, but you still have to work to people. And there has to be something that's positive at the end, whether it's a yes or a no. You need to move on and people need to understand and have transparency. So a lot of that wasn't happening, I didn't think. So I waited, decided not to Two years ago, not to do it, I got involved with other things. I said, hey, I need to work on my golf game. Uh, I'd gone to Oswego, my first reunion in years. I got to go up there, run into Mike Byrne, right? Another one of your fellow uh, board members who I remember from college. We had great times together when he was on program policy board and I was president. We both hosted two very interesting people in our, in our time at Oswego. It was really kind of crazy. But I um, knew him and then a couple other people, uh, Paul Soroka, who's another graduate 79 business major, who we kind of ran tangentially in a Venn diagram a little bit, you know, I didn't really know him that well. He knew me up a little bit. So, um, but we got together now we've become really good friends again. And so, you know, understanding that communication route reach, all that stuff can, can regenerate things. So that's what my candidacy really is all about. Get the communications, uh, look at what we really can achieve. Uh, don't try to outrun our coverage of what we can really do as a small town. And um, now I'm unaffiliated. I said, I don't need, you know, the party, I'm not going to become, you know, I'm not going to become one party over the other. I looked at it. I was a Republican. I, I told them when I uh, made the announcement, I made the announcement at a, um, a Republican uh, Lincoln Day dinner in February that I wanted to run. Uh, my mother-in-law, who had been, a, she had been the first selectman in this town back in the in late uh, um, 80s and 90s. She was the first woman elected 
ever into town. And, and she was in the New York Times and written up about the, the age of women when, when Hillary Clinton was coming in with Bill Clinton and, and taking more power. She was one of the ones that was running this little town. And Henry Kissinger just live in this town. So there's a lot of folks of power and, and influence that come here all the time. Oscar De Laurenti used to live here. He's going to church with him. Um, you know, so there are people that, you know, you have to deal with too that, that are looking to have a nice community to live in. So, um, so I said, you know, I just want to, that's what I really want to reach out both across the aisle. So at this um, Lincoln Day dinner, I said, yeah, I definitely want to do it. And somebody said, you want to make an announcement? I said, sure. And I'd love to run with the endorsement and the support of the Republicans, but I'm going to reach across the aisle and I'm going to build, try to build a coalition of just people with K, just people from Kent. So my tagline is Marty for Kent. And, and I'm really excited about it. I think it's, you know, um, I think I have something to offer still a couple of years. My wife doesn't want to retire, so we can't run around to my grandson in Colorado as much as I'd like. My golf game is bad enough. I don't even want to go do that anymore. I've got time. I'm still energetic. And I know a lot about what I don't know. And what I really know is, is there's like a lot of great people with great ideas and, and great abilities um, I just need to help get them together, find out where we need to go, let people do their job, get out of their way, uh, hold them accountable and and try to you know move us to the future. Look at the economic health of the community and all that. So that's kind of where I am and why I wanted to, to run. So. No, 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 no. That's sounding great. As a full-time volunteer, I, I applaud you because we keep saying that there aren't a lot of people who are willing to raise their hand and say me. So I love that you're one of those people. For anybody who wants to... Um, check you out. There's there the research I did on you. This one is my favorite. Your okay. LinkedIn profile, I'm going to read it back to you. And maybe now that you're running for office, you're going to change this. But right now, your LinkedIn profile says you are a fly fisherman, erstwhile hunter, lousy golfer, bon vivant, that's just a classic, yeah. and apprentice goof off. It also mentioned time that you're spending uh, time thinking about a novel and I right. want you to know, as soon as you write that novel, I'll be the first one to read it. Right. Any hints about, you know, is that still kind of cooking in your brain a little bit? Well, it's been cooking for a while. I, when I got back here, um, it's funny. Um, my wife was on the boards. She had, we built the house in 2010 or started in 2007, building uh, on the property where my wife grew up in this town. So she, we bought the house, tried to renovate it. It's just an old stick farmhouse. It was one of the only farmhouses from like the 1860s. It was moved up the river when flooding occurred down there. There's a picture early 1906, I think, from taken from a mountain up here. You look down and there's this huge open field where they denuded all the forest to, to make farmland. In the middle of it all is my wife's old house. And anyway, so that's how old it was when we tried to redo it. So we took it down, built the house. Um, but I didn't retire from DI. I still worked overseas and, and was doing a bunch of stuff with DIA until 2014 when I finally said, okay, I've had enough. I've missed being home. I need to, you know, I couldn't pick my wife out of a lineup, you know, two out of three times. It was that and she couldn't pick me out either, which was the worst part. But um, anyway, so she was on a, um, a board. She'd got involved with everything when she came here and she was going to grad school, getting her MBA, excuse me. So she was on every board, Templeton, old, you know, the retirement home. Anyway, um, they, the library board had decided that that year they were going to have a bunch of speakers come in and it was going to be the, the international military government um, piece. So they had speakers. So they, one of the speakers they asked for was the uh, former commanding officer, the four-star general of the U.S. Africa Command, named General Kip Ward, um, which we worked for. I mean, I worked closely with him. I did a lot of those last minute things. Hey, General, we need to, I need approval right now as we're walking out the door to get an operation done. And he's like, oh, Marty, Lindy, he's coming. Lindy, why the heck can you tell me this before? Well, sir, because I just thought of it last night. Or, you know, he's like, what idea are you, you know, stewing on? But anyway, we got to know him. And Kathleen had worked closely with him 
and, and her relationship with African countries to help their military, um, you know, develop an intelligence program. So he was a wonderful man. So he came here to speak. So I'm at an event with him. Um, we're listening to the host at the time of a dinner um, going and, I, and he and I, General Ward and sit in our sitting next to each other, he's a very tall, very distinguished looking man. And he looks down at me, he goes, hey, Lenny, what's that? And the guy in front of us, diminutive older man, gentleman in his late 80s, 90s, is wearing a pin. And, you know, we've been around the, the world. So we look at it and it was a Croix de Guerre with Oakley, you know, with a, with a uh, um, Ballon d'Or, a, 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 a gold circle around it for multiple operations. So we're looking at it. I'm like, you don't see those people. But he was obviously a gentleman of World War II. So anyway, we got talking to him, found out that he was, you talk about a hero, a guy that did multiple bombing missions, all, you know, and you reach a certain amount of bombing missions and you got to rotate back the train and somebody else came and took your place. He stayed almost twice as long because his buddy had been injured and didn't have all of his, you know, he wouldn't leave until his buddy left. And meanwhile, he was recruited by the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, to run, fly small planes into France and Belgium and other places to drop off you know, resistance fighters and, and operatives and all that, and pick up people and drop off saboteurs before D-Day and, and flying back. And the guy was just amazing. And when he got done with all that, he, he went to Greece for a little bit uh, after World War, when the, the Greece uh, revolution came in and they deposed the king and all that stuff. Um, he was down there with the OSS and CIA in the fort, and he said, heck with it. Went back, went to law school, became a real estate lawyer, I think um, like a, a, a an advocate for and, and made a small fortune, but made his name in, in New York City. Nobody knew. So I'm looking at that. So we grab him and say, you know, it's kind of So he starts telling us a little bit about it. He had never told anybody. His wife of many years was standing. No idea. It was a second wife, but, but they've been married like 20 years. She had no idea at all. So we started getting in. And meanwhile, we're talking amongst ourselves. There was a man named Frank Delaney, Irishman, very distinguished. Oh, talk about the good-looking tall Irishman with the flowing white hair. He was a poet and a writer, had been a, um, a BBC reporter in the Troubles in Northern Ireland, been captured by both sides, you know, by IRA and by the, the Ulster Constabulary. Anyway, guy was an amazing guy. Wrote a bunch of books on, on Ireland, novels, and other interesting things. I had written one I'd read about. Um, my dad was in the Merchant Marine in World War II, but this talked about a merchant ship that had gone down and how it was rescued and kind of made it interesting. So, and I met him, and he was hearing our stories. And then General Ward was saying, yeah, I, I, we know this, Marty does this for you. So he grabbed me and he said, we've got a guy in a novel in there. So we started talking about, like we had talked about you know, situation stuff. And so anyway, we started writing a novel, it took us, we were over for a year. We kind of were looking at it. Um, folks from, I think it was Amazon or something came to talk about series because they're always looking at maybe pitching, you know, follow on series. Unfortunately, we did a lot of stuff on his computers in his you know, beautiful, beautiful barn that it converted into office space. It was, oh my God, it was absolutely gorgeous. So we worked there and worked on his computers. He died suddenly of a, of a stroke. Everything was in there. His wife couldn't get at it. When they were trying to get at it, they ended up dusting the hard drive and ruining, you know, months of work. I have a few, you know, uh, galleys and some sort of ideas and like 130 page, uh, 30, it's 130 pages. Was maybe something like that of, of some backward thought, but it kind of, you know, the, the momentum went out of it. Then I got into school board and got into doing other things um, uh, and just kind of went on with my life and, and uh, couldn't figure out how to get it all together on my own. I'm not a writer. I'm one of those people that needs to be beaten on daily to get about 500 words out of whatever you're supposed to do as a writer. And, and Frank was great with that. So anyway, um, but uh, so I still have stuff and in, in, there's probably still something in there. It was more topical at the time and it may not be as topical now. 
you know, there's tons of people that are writing historical novel things for, you know, military guys and stuff on operations. So some of it I can't write about, obviously, because of that classification piece too. And, you know, and what I'm supposed to know and not know anymore. So anyway, um, but yeah, so I, uh, that was uh, the writing part. So if I get that done, I will certainly send you a copy. So I'm sure I'm going to write something before it's all over. I have to. Yeah. You, you have had such an amazing, interesting life. That's what, that's why we've gone so long. Normally I don't keep somebody this long, but it's, it's well, just, sorry, yeah. So yeah. much. Yeah, it is. It's great. It's great to talk. I appreciate, you know, getting a chance to, to visit with you too. So so one more question. This is always my last question. Uh, it's the Oscar speech. If you were being handed an Oscar, who during your time in Oswego would you like to thank for the amazing career that you've had? <laughs> um, a guy named Don Rowe, Brian McLoon. Let me start with Brian McLoon. Brian McLoon, uh, I don't know if you know him, uh, whatever, but uh, he was a year ahead of me. He was um, the a vice president. We had a president, vice president of, of um, student, uh, student association that, and he was at the time the speaker of the student senate. And so the succession, if, if the president, vice president could be there with the vice president moved up to president or the speaker moved in anyway. Um, but um, a couple, the vice president left to go, I think sell bagels or whatever. So Brian was in there. Well, at the time I had moved from a, a, an apartment, part of a house off campus onto campus. And, um, <laughs> The nightmare from that off-campus thing my first semester as a freshman was crazy. But when I moved on, I found that I was limited to where I could go. I didn't have a car or anything. My bike had been stolen or whatever. And jumping on a bus in the middle of winter around, you know, central around, uh, you know, Sweden was always a challenge to get out to where the stores were and all that. So I just went to the, the um, college store and they had, you know, things in there. Well, I noticed how expensive stuff was. And I'm thinking, that's, that's kind of not right. Now, my dad had worked for the state. And he talked about the state's buying powers and he was able to buy because he drove his own car for the state. They gave him like, uh, you know, a allowance, but they also bought him tires. And he talked about because they, you know, it's the state's buying uh, in large quantities, the, the price of these tires are nothing. And I'm like, oh, but we have 28 university centers. I don't even remember how many community colleges and other specialized universities, plus the state power because it's state university. Our buying power should be that the cost for talcum powder or feminine spray or, you know, and toothpaste, uh, you know, hair spray, whatever it may be, a um, brush should be a lot cheaper, you know, in these stores because you're buying for all these, obviously the state's buying, you know, with the schools putting in their order. It's kind of like a chain store, but why are it so expensive? So I went around and literally took a hundred items. I just asked from people, what do you think, you know, what are the top 10 items that you look for that, you know, you look for at the college store or someplace else. So I got a list of a hundred, went to, the time it was a phase drugs, which was kind of like CVS on, on the very east side, uh, out by the theater. And the, the and so I went from there. I went to mom and pop stuff that I stopped at. I went to a couple bigger stores, chain stores. I mean, like a CVS. And then I went to the college store and I just laid out everything and priced them all out. Found about 92 of them, I think, out of the 100 that were actually in every store in some way, shape or form. Sizes may have been a little different, whatever, but I noted that down. I just wrote it all down. It was just my exercise, keeping my mind going. And I should have been in class, but I was doing this. And I went to the Senate and, and put it in. So, And I'm kind of, you know, I, I guess I'm on a, on a tangent here. I apologize. But anyway, so I got involved with that. They liked it. Brian said, hey, you know, you should come in as a senator. And they had one open in Seneca when I moved in. So I came in and loved it. Um, I'd always wanted, I was a political science major, history major. So I really wanted to get involved in it. I love that. Brian was such a good friend and such a good mentor. Um, and I ran for vice president. But my cum at the time was on the edge of, what had been allowed. So um, I got, you know, I couldn't, I, got, I won the vice president election, but couldn't assume it. So I became an assistant, but ran as president the next time. 
So Brian would be one of the first ones. Don Lett, who was a great friend from, from Seneca, ran against me for president. He'd be another one. Um, there's guy, uh, uh, Mike Byrne. I mean, I just, you know, uh, just impressed because he's such a fun guy. I always laughed when I was around him. He's the kind of guy. Uh, I'll say um, Virginia Radley. Virginia Radley is, was, was maybe a, a, a foil to me, but um, I saw some of the things that Shirley did that later on in life, I learned that lesson. Maybe not when I was an undergrad, you know, saying, hey, what we need here is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, getting called to her office and saying, what did you say last night? <laughs> you know, things like that, which happened. And, uh, but, and, and there was a guy, another good friend of mine who was a roommate for a while, Howie Cohen, uh, Wendell, we used to call him. He was a rugby player. Um, he was the first guy I know that had hard contact lenses and he was playing rugby, got mud in it, took him out. We put him in two plastic cups with a little water in it to keep him clean. My father who was actually at that game, thought there were shots. He drank both of the things down. And yeah, uh, was, <laughs> 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 so my family's been, yeah, it was interesting. But so those are our, 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 you know, the people that I thought were Lori Bulbrook was a good friend. I probably should have had her as my vice president, who at the time was Bob Greenhouse. And he was a great guy, you know, very, very good friend. Lori, I should have thought about a woman running because no woman had been elected uh, into the, you know, the presidency or vice presidency at um, SA yet. Um, so those are the group of friends that I had. Um, the fraternity guys were great. Because I was all over the place, kind of like in my career, I had friends everywhere. Um, and it was tough keeping a lot of those throughout my, because there was no Facebook or there was no email to send up, you know, stuff. And I was moving everywhere. I did invite, my, Bob Mealy was a, a, my fraternity sponsor, my big brother in, in, in Sigma Chi, Sigma Tau Chi. And um, so they, they were the only two guys that made it to my wedding, which was a last minute thing, uh, you know, five years after, in 85. So it was kind of crazy. And um, I got to see those guys one other time and then I was gone and um, it just got, it just got crazy. So um, yeah, but those are the ones I would say, you know, from Oswego, I'd say thank you. Obviously, first one would be my mother, obviously. Yeah. She never got a chance to go to college, but she taught me a long time to thine own self be true. So whatever you do, if you can reconcile it with yourself, you know, then you stick with it. If you can't, then really look at why you're doing it, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that was it. Yeah. So and my dad, I mean, my dad was a hard, hard ass kind of guy, but um, but he instilled me the service. That it's no one else's response. You see a piece of garbage on the ground. If you've seen it, you know it doesn't belong. Pick it up. And I do that now. Still, and I, I hear his voice every time, and uh, another. So, but you know, but it um, and they helped. They weren't really supportive of me going to Oswego at first. My dad thought I should go to Cornell, where he went, and we were teaching, you know, at the time. And 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 my mom didn't care. She just wanted me to like make sure you're doing the right thing. But anyway, but those that experiences I had every year, people I, that were from the dorms, from off campus, from fraternity life, from SA, from, you know, Herb Hammond, I have to say, uh, who's a hockey coach. I became very, very close to him. We'd go on travels with him as part of um, the uh, alumni association, student alumni. I, I helped start that when I was president with Steve Sucher, who was the alumni director at that time. Um, we did the undergraduate alumni thing, just gave it a whirl and um, thought we could try to do something to get the, you know, the students be thinking alumni before they left school. And, um, yeah, and that was good. So he was a, a big influence as well. I mean, about thinking bigger and thinking organizationally and taking risks and stuff. So some of my professors, and I can't remember a lot of their names, um, were influential. But I have to admit, I did more of my learning outside of the classroom. And that is the one regret. And I told my, my daughters that, go to class. I loved the class. I loved the interaction. But I was so into so many other things that I couldn't wait to get out to go do stuff. So if I missed a class or whatever... And for some reason, I could read up enough to get my C's and B's, 
and you pass the course without worrying about it. And, and at the time, the um, you know the attendance wasn't as strict. I think maybe as it might be now or something. So anyway. I love hearing that from you. It gives all of the students who aren't A students a little bit of hope because that is an area that we're, we're very much in common. I was not an A student, and yet I had the same story where I was able to spend so much time outside of classes that I feel like I got an amazing education. Absolutely. And if it wasn't for Oswego, I, I don't know where I would be. No, I, and I went to, you know, uh, as part of the, the student association, uh, they called Student Station and State University, SASU. I don't even know if that organization. Yeah, I remember that. that. Yep. Remember that? Mm-hmm. I went to, and I, I um, spoke at university centers. I spoke at like, dozens of other colleges, Binghamton, Oneana, um, Portland, um, Geneseo. No, I got thrown out of Geneseo. But anyway, it's a different story. But Brockport, you know, Buffalo, UB, Albany, um, um, hot stand places like this. So I got to see everything. And, you know, of course you elect this week ago, but I just thought the town, you know, because our fraternity, Sigma Talk High, if you remember, was, is, um, yep. I don't know if I'm in the street, but we're in the middle of town. And um, we had one of the assemblymen's mother living across the street from us, you know, from the area. So we had to be on our best behavior, which we always were, of course. But the community was pretty good about accepting us. When I lived off on the on the east side, on East Third, um, in the house professor's house, who was never there, and, and he was going through a terrible divorce, and every week a truck would pull up and take something else out of the house, including all my bedding. One day, my bed, not my bedding, not the, but the bed, the frame, the dresser, everything it was to the end by the by December. There was nothing left. They took the stove. This is old type, you know, stove out of the kitchen. It was a very acrimonious divorce. But anyway, um, but the neighborhood, you know, I got to know the neighbors. I got to see kids playing and, you know, babysat for a neighbor one time just because they were out of luck looking for people. So anyway, it was um, it was a great community. Um, I love it. I tell people about it all the time, um, you know, and watch the hockey. You know, I think I was overseas in 2007. I was in. um, Yeah, I was in um, Iraq, but we managed to get a feed because, you know, I do have the ability to sneak some stuff like that in, got a feed in and I listened to it online and there was a bunch of old hockey players and Swedish grads from my, my era that were on there. And we were ch- sending a chat, a background chat while we, while we watched the uh, Swigo uh, win the uh, national championship. So it was, it was pretty cool. So. Wow. In Iraq and still never far yeah. from home. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, Maureen, this has been amazing. I, I'm so glad you took the time for us. I'm so glad I got to know you and, and thank yeah. you not only for your time today, but your service to our country and the things you're trying to do in your small town. It's it's volunteers like you, people who raise their hand that get things done. And it's just been amazing to get to know you. Exactly. Well, I appreciate it, Dee. And yeah, it, it is, uh, service has, has been so important um, because I get so much out of it too. And Having the ability now to spend the time that when I'm now sedentary and, and, and part of the community, uh, I want to be part of it. And I, and I just love walking around and, and seeing the good things. We live, like I said, next to the school. And our biggest joy in the morning, having a cup of coffee and watching the 20 or 30 kids run down and holler. The basketballs bounced at, after school to go play and to see that uh, and hope we're building something for, for the future. And that's, you know, and that's what we've done. So we go help me build me to the person I am today. Um, and, and so proud of that. And, and so, you know. Um, happy to be part of that and, and proud to be a, a Swigo alum. And uh, so, yeah, so I appreciate your, your, your time as well. And uh, it was really enjoyable. I enjoyed you know, telling you stories. I, I love telling stories. 
And if you want to reach out to us with guest ideas for the next podcast, you can find us on Facebook or LinkedIn or email us at alumni at oswego.edu. We are always looking for ideas from our over 92,000 alumni. I'm Dee Perkins, and we'll see you next time on the Oswego Alumni Podcast.